Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 through 13, and then Matthew 11, verse 19. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, but not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. This is God's word. Amen. Good morning. Isn't Susan the best scripture reader? Dude, record like the New Testament, the whole thing, audio for us, please. And a worship team, thank you. Y'all sounded great as always. Thanks for leading us. Good morning. My name is Jeff Skipper, one of the uh, pastors here at Redeemer, and it's good to be with you as we continue to make our way uh, through this summer which is actually drawn to a close pretty quickly. Um, the children, we don't hear their collective groan because they've left already. Uh, but it's nearing. Uh, even have the Olympics later this week starting, uh, which is exciting after a couple of years off, I guess. Um, we actually watched some of the Olympic trials around our house, and we noticed just how good the athletes are at their respective sports. I know that's an obvious observation, but when you're watching with little kids, that's kind of fresh and new to them. And, you know, my kids were kind of commenting that they just it looks effortless. It looks... Just so natural, and I had to explain to my boys, well, that's because of discipline, right? Like, they've put themselves in the way of this practice for so long, they've started to be shaped by the practice itself. I mean, they may, they may be naturally inclined so, towards that certain craft a little bit, their biological makeup and their body and so on, but it's not simply natural. That's, that's not fair, Right? It's like learning guitar. Uh, it's, it's hard and it's awkward and your fingertips hurt and your hands cramp and people say, well, it's just not for me. Uh, well, it is because at some point, if you keep going, you, you're no, it's no longer forced. Uh, if you keep going long enough, it becomes so smooth, it flows. Uh, you're like Eric Clapton. You're completely free on, at this particular discipline. Uh, former Navy SEAL and podcaster Jocko Willink, he always says, discipline equals freedom. That's kind of his tagline. Discipline equals freedom. In other words, those who regularly, intentionally put themselves to the practice of something, they plan, they have a routine, they execute it regularly. As they give themselves to those means, they increasingly become more free in whatever it is. It becomes more natural, as we say. And we've, we've been using a metaphor to describe this really throughout this series, and we've said to grow productively a vine needs a trellis, because uh, naturally it doesn't grow beautifully. It gets tangled, it's wild, it's a mess, and so a vine needs a track, and when it does have a track, that's when the vine actually is most free to flourish, which sometimes we talk about the correct definition of freedom. Freedom isn't the absence of boundaries. Right? You're most free within the right boundaries. A fish is most free within water and, and so on. You get the point. Same with a vine on a trellis. And so the same could be said of our spiritual lives. Our spiritual lives don't grow naturally. As a matter of fact, because of sin, Romans 8, 7 says the natural mind is hostile to God. 
right? Like, in other words, I don't naturally just gravitate towards godliness. I know that's a surprise, right? Towards faithfulness and purity and kindness and sacrifice and all of these things. In other words, I'm actually like a wild vine, and I become a tangled mess if I'm left to myself. That's kind of like my natural state, my fallen state because of sin. And so, like an Olympic athlete, if we're going to grow in our spiritual lives, we can't just wing it. We can't just keep doing the same things we've been doing. We need a trellis to give our spiritual lives direction. I've been reading a book called Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. I'm, I'm not a great sleeper. And he talks about how we spend one-third of our lives sleeping. And actually, the quality of our sleep is like the most important factor to our overall overall health. And yet, even though I'm not a great sleeper, I'm not thoughtful about my sleep. Even though it's one-third of my entire life, I rarely think about how I sleep and what I do. And the research says I should turn off the blue lights well before bed, Kindles and phones and TVs and all of that. Don't drink caffeine late in the day. Don't drink too much alcohol before bed. Right? I need to show care in that area if I'm going to get better results. Because, if, I mean, it's basic logic. If I keep doing what I've always done, I have no plan. I'm just going to wing sleep the rest of my life. One third of my life, I'm just going to wing it. No thoughtfulness, no nothing. Then I'm going to keep getting the same results. Right? Isn't that the definition of insanity? Again, it's the same with our spiritual lives. Can't just wing it. We have to implement new habits. And just like learning guitar, as I referenced a minute ago, it may feel awkward when you introduce these new habits and kind of forced on the front end. But over time, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, those means will begin to shape us. And it will become more free. We'll begin to flow or grow like a vine on a trellis. And God has given us a trellis to grow on, thank God. If you're new to church, or at least our kind of camp, we often use the the term, uh, the means of grace. God has given us means of grace by which, through which we can know him and grow. And there's the obvious ones, like the Bible, right? Scripture reading, um, prayer, community, Sabbath. But the more you grow in the Christian life, the, the line between the sacred and the ordinary begins to disappear a little bit, increasingly so. And you realize, like, Everything is from God, and therefore everything is an opportunity to know him more and grow closer to him. Not just the obvious spiritual stuff, also all the other stuff. I can know him through that too, because all things are from him and through him and to him. And that kind of brings us to the habit of today, and it's maybe not one you would have guessed, which is meals. It wasn't even the sermon topic I signed up for, okay? When Drew's away, he makes the schedule, and that's what I got. So we're in this together. We're going to talk about food, okay? So you're going to be really hungry by the end of this sermon, which is probably normal, but maybe more so today. Uh, There's some habits, some of these habits we need to form from from the ground up. Like, they don't currently exist in our lives. Maybe, Maybe, like, community Bible reading, doing personal devotions from the Scriptures are not a normal practice of your life. And so you need to start that now, or prayer. You need to form that. But this is a practice we just need to reform because it, is, it already exists. We eat every day. We just need to rethink how we eat and why we eat, which is true of everything we do, right? Everything is an opportunity to worship, as I just said. We just need to rethink how we live and work and play to glorify God and love others through those things. So it's not always about starting new things. Sometimes it's just about doing the same things you're already doing, but doing those things differently. 
And I think that goes for food. And food's all over the Bible. Since this is a topical series, I had no idea what text to pick. I mean, the food literally, like the Bible opens with them eating food and it ends with us eating food. There's a thousand texts we could have chosen this morning. So as Susan read, we chose a couple from the New Testament. And you can see the theme running through the the law and the assurance passage this morning. But uh, you'll see those texts in your worship folder. There's an outline on the back of that sheet if you want to look at that. And we'll just look at three points this morning, okay? Meals as a means of worship, meals as a means of connection, and meals as a means of hope. So first, let's look at meals as a means of worship. Now, first, when you see a plate of food, all you see is food. Uh, but I want to submit that, that it actually that meals tell a much deeper story. Because by their very existence, meals reveal our dependency upon God, our dependency upon one another, our dependency upon creation, and therefore should result in humility, gratitude, and enjoyment, i.e. worship. That was a mouthful. And your oatmeal you had this morning says all of that. I want to say it again. Your oatmeal, by its very existence, reveals your and my dependency upon God, one another, and creation, and should result in humility, gratitude, and enjoyment of God's good gifts. But first, uh, let's start here. How would you finish this sentence? Now, Jesus referred to himself uh, often as the Son of Man, which was an Old Testament term, so that they knew he was the Messiah. So he called himself the Son of Man. And he described his mission by saying, the Son of Man has come to blank. The Son of Man came to blank. How would you finish that sentence? The son, maybe you'd say, well, the Son of Man came to, if Jesus said, he came doing good works and forgiving. I'd say, that checks out. That, that'd be a good one. He should have used that one. Right? The Son of Man came preaching good news. The Son of Man came establishing the kingdom. The Son of Man has come to die on the cross and rise again for our sins. Well, three times Jesus started a sentence that way. And these are the three. He said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, in Mark 10. Secondly, he said the Son of Man came to seek and, and to save the lost, from uh, Luke 19. And finally, as we read, he said the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, Luke 7. One of those sticks out like a sore thumb. One of those seems real, like, kind of like a letdown lately. You're God in the flesh, you're Messiah, that's the best you got? I mean, came eating and drinking? Uh, Tim Chester has a book called A Meal with Jesus, and he said the first two of those statements are statements of purpose. Why did Jesus come? He came to serve, to give his life, right? To seek and to save the lost. But the third is a statement of method. How did Jesus come? He came eating and drinking. Actually, he was so into eating and drinking, his enemies accused him of doing it in excess. What did they call him there? They said he's a glutton and a drunkard. That's how much he ate and drank. He, he loved meals and you kind of got to call it like you see it. He, he loved to party. It seems like it. Uh, Rowan Williams said this, when reading the Gospels, you sometimes get the impression that if anywhere in ancient Galilee you heard a loud noise and a lot of laughter and talking and singing, you could be reasonably sure that Jesus of Nazareth was around somewhere nearby. For example, Robert Karras, he said this. He said, in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. <laughs> Some of y'all feel really justified right now. You're like, Jesus did it. 
I mean, let's just walk through really quickly a flyby of Luke. Chapter 5, he's eating with tax collectors and sinners at Levi's house. Chapter 7, he's anointed at Simon the Pharisee's house during a meal. Chapter 9, he feeds the 5,000. Chapter 10, he's eating at Martha and Mary's house. Chapter 11, he condemns the Pharisees at a meal. Chapter 14, he's at a meal when he urges people to invite the poor to their own meals. Right? Chapter 19, he invites himself to dinner at Zacchaeus' house, which is just a pro move. I love it. He's like, I'm coming to your house for dinner tonight. Hope you have something prepared. Chapter 22, the Last Supper. Chapter 24, right when he rises from the dead, he eats. The risen Jesus has a meal with his two disciples. That's just a flyby of Luke, and that's not even getting into all of his parables and teachings filled with images and banquets of food. So Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully man. He's our savior, but he's also our example. And so he models what does it look like to be fully human, to enjoy the good gifts of God. He's not some unrelatable ascetic denying himself to a degree that he's too good for earthly material stuff. No, he's, he's all in. Like food is central to his life and his ministry, and it should be to ours as well. And in a way, I mean, meals are central to our lives by necessity. We got to eat. Right? Our days are even broken up into their various parts by our meals. Uh, Tish Warren said this. She said, there are a few very good meals I remember, and there are a few truly terrible meals I remember. But most of the meals I've eaten were utterly unremarkable. If you asked me what I ate for lunch three weeks ago on Monday, I couldn't tell you. And yet that average forgettable meal nourished me. Thousands of forgotten meals have brought me to today. They've sustained my life. They were my daily bread. And I thought that sounds a lot like most of our spiritual experiences too. Most of our devotions, most sermons like this one, uh, most Sunday mornings, I mean, they're unremarkable. They're somewhat forgettable. Maybe even within 24 hours or seven days from now, you won't even remember. And yet they sustain us over the long term. Those meals, those sermons, those devotions, those prayers, those community group meetings, all of those things, we need them because we're needy. And as I mentioned, meals reveal just how needy and dependent we are. I said, first, they show we're dependent upon God. I mean, we think we're, we think we're pretty self-sufficient until we go about eight hours without food, and then it's, it's bad news, right? I, anybody remember when COVID hit and there was no meat? That was just me? I literally almost died, uh, and you guys didn't share. I was posting on Facebook. No one gave me any ribs or anything. Uh, I mean, in the absence of food, it really does reveal. We know this from hurricanes, right? A hurricane's coming, there's no gas, there's no water, there's no toilet paper. I mean, imagine just for a moment, there's no food for a couple days. We're on the brink of total societal breakdown. We depend upon God for every meal. I remember, I think the first prayer I ever learned was, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food, which is really good theology because when Jesus taught us to pray, one of the things he said was, give us this day what? Our daily bread. That's not little kid stuff. Like food is an occasion for worship. From the first cup of coffee you have in the morning, it's an, it's an opportunity to acknowledge our need and God's faithful daily sustaining grace. So food shows we're dependent upon God, but it also reveals we're communal. We depend upon one another. Right? We depend upon the farmer, the butcher, the harvester, the truck drivers, the grocers, the brewers, Thought I'd get an amen there. Y'all are doing great. You weren't supposed to say amen, and you didn't. 
We need all of them, right? Like there's so many hands and factors and pieces uh, that contribute to how that drink or that food or that oatmeal got to our table. It reveals, if you think a little deeper past what you can see, you think, I can't do this on my own. I need you. There's so many people I don't even know who went into this meal right in front of me right now. Meals show we're dependent upon God, we're dependent upon one another, but also it reveals we're dependent upon creation. I mean, for the first time in my life, I have St. Augustine grass, and March through May, I prayed for rain every day because my water bill was so high. I had Bahia before, and it didn't matter. It just died, and it rose again. Like, it was a testimony, <laughs> Christian testimony every year. <laughs> uh, I can't imagine how desperate my prayers would be if I was praying for rain that, so that my crops might grow so that my family might eat. I mean, I'm sure that all the generations before us were more in touch with just grateful for creation and now we snap our fingers and DoorDash is there thank God with Taco Bell or we did that one time Taco Bell DoorDash low point of my life I'm I feel like this is confession we're safe in here uh, praise God for that but still even with all our technological progress and production and factories and all of these things we're still depend dependent upon the land and the animals and the and the weather Right? From every angle, meals reveal we're dependent. So every meal is a reminder of our need and God's provision. So food isn't simply like gas to get me to my real work in the world. In a way, in some ways, food is an end in itself. Right? It tells us a story about myself, about others, about God. And in that way, eating is a spiritual habit. It's actually a doorway for worship and should lead to humility, gratitude, and it's a gift that should be thoughtfully and prayerfully enjoyed as Jesus himself modeled throughout all of his life. But meals aren't, aren't only a, a means of worship, that vertical uh, aspect, right? It does have a vertical aspect to it, but it's also a means of connection. Now think more horizontally. And so if the first point answered, how did Jesus come? The second is, okay, why did he come that way? Okay, he came eating and drinking, great. Why did he come eating and drinking? Well, we just said, well, it's to model um, what it looks like to embrace our humanity, to be fully human, to embrace the good gifts of God. But was there a further end game to his coming that way? Well, we know Jesus' end game was always to glorify God and to love others. And so every time we see Jesus eating and drinking, his table's full of people. And this gets at the nature of his eating and drinking. How was he productively using his meals, right? And there's something about food that creates an environment of connection, which is why we find food at almost every corporate event, every function, from a baby shower to a fantasy football draft, there's food there. And if there's not, we have an issue with it. Can you imagine showing up to a baby shower, there's no food. You're like, I'm out. You know, we complain, right? It's, its presence even changes our most ordinary meetings. I mean, you can imagine having a meeting with, uh, with someone one-on-one -on -one, uh, at a table, having a conversation and talking, and then compare that to having the same exact meeting with that same person at a table, but there's a blooming onion right there between you. <laughs> You're like, formal meeting now is a party because of blooming onion, and I don't even know you. But food breaks tension, right? As we share a common meal, we connect in a unique way that we almost don't even realize is happening. It's the same thing when I'm talking to my boys. I have three boys, 11, 9, and 6. And if I'm just, I'm, this is like uh, something I've learned in parenting. It took me 11 years. If I'm just talking to them face-to-face, -face, just one-on-one, -on -one, it's tough to get a lot out of them. Hey, man, how's your heart? How you feeling? What's going on at school? I mean, I don't get anything. 
If you add two gloves and a baseball, or like a cheeseburger, and you have the same conversation, they tell you everything. That, I'm telling you, that's, that's a pro tip right there. That extra shared mutual element, especially when it's food, creates an environment for connection. There's something about it, that it breaks down walls. And Jesus did this. He created this welcoming, warm environment around the table for people to come and to do just that. Uh, which is evident by the type of person we usually find at his table. If you look that, there at that Matthew 9 passage, verse 10, it says, those who gravitated to Jesus' table were sinners. Right? Unlike the Pharisees, the Pharisees were focused on who they kept away from their tables. The unclean, the unqualified, and so on. And yet Jesus shared his table with outsiders, those who had blown it, people you wouldn't typically have at your dinner party. And, and at his table, they felt comfortable. They felt loved. They felt like they could let their hair down. I feel really uncomfortable in formal restaurants. Like, I've done that with Drew a few times, and he always makes fun of me because I don't know how to dress. I don't know how to read the menu. I don't even know how to act. Like, I'm just, it's awkward. Uh, I just don't do formal, nice restaurants. It's weird to me. Um, I actually remember uh, fundraising for the church plant uh, six years ago or so, and I met someone for lunch, and it was at a nice restaurant, and, and, and we're talking, and he unrolled his silverware, and he began to lay out his silverware. And he put his napkin in his lap. And so I played it cool, and I started doing the same thing. And I had no idea what I was doing, but I, I put it all in the same places that he put it so that I looked respectable. And I thought I nailed it. I'm like, yeah, I, I know how to do all this stuff. Uh, and I got home later, and I, I told Marissa, it hit me. I, I mirrored him, which meant I put it all backwards. <laughs> and I was like, he knows I'm a fraud. He knows I'm fake. There's no way he's financially supporting the church plant. It, it's done. I've been exposed. Gosh. At Jesus' table, there's no pressure. You don't have to prove yourself. Instead, you see these stories and you, and you get these, these uh, images in your mind of laughter and joy of honest conversation at his table, a place where you don't take yourself too seriously, a place where you don't have to wear a mask, right? A place where you can share your heart, you can crack a joke. It's a place of welcome and inclusion, a place where you can be known and heard and healed and fed in more ways than one at his table. And so in the common rule book that this series is based on, um, the habit that we're called to cultivate, we've, we've been looking at, is uh, one meal with others each day. That's the habit we're called. Have one meal with others each day. And of course, that's not a quick bite. This is a meal where you slow down and you put the distractions aside and you give your full attention to the moment, which is rare anywhere today. Full attention to the moment at that table. And before we're talking about having meals with people in terms of neighbors and evangelisms and all that, we have to start in our own homes. Right? If you live with others, is this a regular practice of your household? At our, at our house, we haven't nailed it, but we try, right? There's no cell phones allowed at the table, no tech, um, and with three boys, we have to get creative. We have conversation starter cards to help open, open us up, like would you rather cards. Uh, and we tell stories, and we pray, and we talk about God, and we make fun of one another. And sometimes we cry, and sometimes we discipline, and sometimes we laugh. But it is the time, the place where we connect most all day long, once a day. Right? We don't allow different plates to go to different rooms. Um, do you have space for that slow meal where everyone is present once a day, 
Uh, in that common rule book, the author said, if our household routine is too busy to allow meals that unfold with family members, roommates, or neighbors, our house is not actually a school of love, but rather a school of busyness. What's your house like? Is it a school of love? Is there space to sit at that table once a day? Or is it a school of busyness? And it's not, only when it comes, it's not only true when it comes to building our families and the cohesion there and knowing one another and, and growing closer to the Lord, but it's also true when it comes to building community. Uh, Carolyn Steele said this. She said, someone with whom we share food is likely to be our friend or well on the way to becoming one. I remember there was uh, someone in the church a few years ago who we had significant theological disagreements. And so we decided, you know what? It's like we're going to have a showdown. We're going to meet and have breakfast. We're going to have coffee. And we're going to figure it all out, right? Which is like, tell each other how wrong the other one is and you never accomplish anything. Uh, and so we sat down and we had that first meeting and we had coffee and breakfast. And then we didn't figure it all out. Imagine that. We didn't figure out all of theology in that one meeting. So we, we said, let's meet again next week. We didn't figure it, out, figure it out there either. And we just, it became an ongoing breakfast. And before we knew it, before I knew it, we were friends. We were just having a meal together weekend, asking about one another's families and laughing and praying. Food builds friendships it also builds larger community uh it, you know if your community community group is struggling start smoking ribs straight up the holy spirit will show up and everybody else will show up too uh, food as she said someone with whom we share food is likely to be our friend or it's well on the way on the way to becoming one it builds friendships it builds larger community are you stewarding meals well in order to connect with others like Jesus, are you, are you productively using your meals? Do our tables look like his? Is it a place where the weary gravitate to and, and feel at rest? Are you using them to, to create a place where people can come and be welcomed and known and loved in the name of Jesus? And that goes for simply encouraging other Christians, people already in your circles, or displaying the welcoming grace of Jesus to hosting non-Christians, Right? Uh, maybe you've heard of Rosaria Butterfield, who's a, an author, a Christian author, and she was, you have to read her testimony in her book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, all about hospitality and, and food and hosting and all of that uh, and its role within the, our, our faith. Um, but she was very hostile to Christianity. I believe she was um, a college professor. And she started attending a church, and the pastor and his wife invited her over for lunches after church. And through that, that is like her, her uh, conversion hinged upon those meals. Right, don't underestimate the power of hospitality. So we see this is a regular way of life that we see Jesus model, or sitting at the table with others on a regular basis. By the way, sometimes with no agenda, just to, to be present, to eat and drink and talk and laugh. It's a practice to sustain our souls, not just our bodies. And it can look a lot of different ways. It can look ordinary or lavish. It can be one-on-one. -on -one. It can be meals after church or having people at your house. And so very practically, what if you made it your goal, as this habit calls us to, to have one meal a day with others? Again, starting within your own home. Or maybe even expand that goal and say, you know, make it a goal. You're going to have uh, one meal a month with someone new. Maybe even go so extreme that you're going to budget money to have that meal once a month, to have some sort of community meal uh, to build um, community. And so meals are a means of worship. There's this vertical aspect. Meals are a means of connection. There's the horizontal aspect where it, it bonds us together, but ultimately they should be seen as a sign pointing us to a deeper satisfaction that we all long for. 
Austin prayed that a minute ago. They're pointing us to a deeper satisfaction and they're a foretaste of what's to come for those in Jesus. Because the Bible says that's how it all ends. That's what we're headed for is a great wedding feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Appropriately, a party where there's rejoicing and singing for those in Christ. And so in a way, meals now are like rehearsal dinners that make us lean into the hope of the real thing, the true thing. Uh, I'm reading Bruce Springsteen's biography, and uh, his first big hit in 1980 was Everybody Has a Hungry Heart. And, and it's catchy, but I think the message is what resonated with people. Where That was his first top ten hit. Everybody has a hungry heart. Is that true of you? We're hungry to be fully known and yet still fully loved, like those people who sit at Jesus' table. Fully known, yet fully loved. We're hungry for forgiveness of sins. We're hungry for meaning and purpose. We're hungry to be made new, for like the, the, the power to be free from sin's presence in our lives. We're hungry to be free from shame and guilt and regret and despair and pride, free from the rat race of trying to prove yourself or climb some sort of ladder, free from the roller coaster of approval. We're hungry for acceptance and welcome and hope of eternal life. And Jesus says, all of that is available in him alone. He said, we have a much deeper need than bread to fill our stomachs. As a matter of fact, one time in John 6, he, he fed people and they ran him down later wanting more. And he said, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Like he came eating and drinking, thank God, but he also came to give his life as a ransom for many, which is why. This is why he could invite the most notorious sinners and outcasts to come and eat and drink at his table because he would pay the price for their sins. He would pay the cost for their invite to the table. That's the promise of the gospel. We can eat and drink at his table with joy and hope now and into eternity because as we read earlier, and it, it brought something out of everyone in the room, I heard it in the assurance of pardon, Isaiah 25, 8, it says, he will swallow up death forever. That's his meal. That's what he eats. He, he will swallow up death forever and he will wipe away all the tears from all faces. Death defeated, welcome given, the table spread. Every other meal will leave you wanting more. Right? That's the imagery in the Chronicles of Narnia when Edmund eats the Turkish delight, the white witch feeds him, and he eats the Turkish delight, and he's like, that's really good, but I want more, I want more, and he eats so much of it, it makes him sick. Right? The point is, C.S. Lewis is getting at, no other meal will satisfy you. If you have a hungry heart, go to Jesus. Jesus calls us to come to him today. That's what his mother Mary saying when she was pregnant with him. She says, he has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich, he sent away empty. And so Revelation 19, let's fast forward to the very end. Revelation 19 says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And of course, the question is, okay, how do you get invited? Pretty important invite. How do you get invited? Well, we read it. The invite was read to start the service. It's the same invitation the Lord gave us at the very beginning of the service from Isaiah 55. What was the first word? Come. Everyone who thirsts. That's the, that's the qualification for the invitation. Come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. The qualification to come to his table is you've got to come with nothing. 
Not your good works, not your spiritual resume, not your accomplishments, none of that, because salvation is by grace, right? Jesus says he came for the sick, verse 12. The hungry, not the righteous. And it's those that the Father runs out to. The Father runs out to greet prodigals like us who drag themselves up the driveway in filthy rags, who've been running the roads, eating at all this gas station food. This is all figurative, right? That type of life, every fast food joint along the way, just, just garbage, and he runs out, and he grabs us just like that, and he says, fire up the grill. Get the best filet we have, find the best wine we have, prepare a feast, because my child was lost, and now they're found. They were dead, and now they're alive, and we're going to party That's how the father greets us, prodigals. And he also comes out and he shakes the proud. Even the elder brother, the self-righteous, he comes out and he invites us in too. He woos us. The promise of the gospel is that in Jesus, our cup overflows. And when we see that, when we see the table that he spreads before us, even in the presence of our enemies, and our cup overflows, then we'll begin to spread a table for others. We'll be known as a people who invite well, host well, eat and drink well to the glory of God, a people who give thanks and rejoice and spread the love of Jesus, all ultimately foreshadowing the kingdom to come in its fullness. Will you pray with me today? Oh, Father, we thank you uh, for your word. And I have to admit um, the first one that all these years of reading the Bible, I kind of cruise over all the passages about food and really almost every single scene in the Bible has something to do with food. And it's amazing to slow down and just consider Jesus, the one who came eating and drinking, even mistaken for a glutton and a drunkard, eating with tax collectors and sinners, those who've blown it, and that's every one of us. Holy Spirit, give us the self-awareness, the honesty, the introspection to say, I'm a mess. And I've been feeding on anything and everything except him. And it's making me sick or it just leaves me empty over and over and over again. And so we come to you, Jesus, the true manna, the true bread from heaven that will satisfy our souls. I don't care if we've been following you or if we've never been following you or if we've been following you for 50 years. Lord, there is some place in our hearts and our lives where we're hungry. That is a gift alone, Holy Spirit, that you would create a hunger in us for you, God. Make us into a people who live like you, who invite like you, who welcome and host like you, and teach us what it means to mysteriously even eat and drink to the glory of God. What a gift to actually be able to not escape our humanity, but walk and live and breathe and eat and drink as you made us. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and uh, be with us now, even as we consider and reflect upon our lives and this curious subject. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. That is a hope worth celebrating. Uh, And that's what we go. This final promise, this reminder that if your faith is in Christ, he will fill the hungry with good things. Keep going to him. And then we're sent as a people who eat and drink to the glory of God. A people who live so much that way that even our neighbors might see us and taste and see that the Lord is good. That's the good news of the gospel. So if your faith is in Jesus, receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in God's peace.